A few weeks ago, I took the time to read from an open letter by a pastor in China who was arrested, he and over a hundred other people in their church, and they were arrested for their faith in Jesus Christ. He wrote the letter, I believe, in September. He knew that persecution was coming closer and closer, and eventually they were arrested in early December. And he penned this letter, which covered a topic, as we looked at when we were walking through Romans chapter 12, he covered a topic such as what it looks like to love even those who persecute him. What does it look like to love them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? An effort to see those who persecute him saved. But today I want to take time to address another facet of his letter, namely submission to authorities. Submission to authorities. And friends, I hope that piques your interest. I mean, he's writing a letter about wanting to not only love his persecutors with the gospel, but to also submit to them insofar as he is able. This is how he starts off his open letter, which, you know, we assume that millions of people have been reading. It's everywhere on the Internet. And he is very clear. He says here, opening paragraph. On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. Now, some of you guys may have read his letter as I posted it on Facebook, but there is so much that can be addressed. And I would encourage you all to go ahead and read that. I'll post it again later on. But in this three-page letter, this pastor affirms his intention to submit to governing authorities. He denounces the wicked actions of the government in persecuting the church and opposing Jesus Christ. In this letter, he also upholds the aim of the church. That is not political activism, but testifying to the hope in the redemption of Jesus Christ. In this letter, he also proclaims the judgment of God against those, according to the Bible, who oppose him. And he also wholeheartedly reaffirms his ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ, the ruler of the universe. This is fascinating. It should be fascinating, I think, to all of us. I mean, it's been over a month since he's been arrested, and as far as I know, there's there's no other further news articles that talk about his release. People in the church have already been relocated to certain re-education camps. We don't really know at this point whether or not we'll hear from him again. But you see all of those things there in the letter. He loves Jesus Christ. He wants to see his persecutors saved. But then at the same time, he desires to submit to governing authorities insofar as he can. So how is it that he is able to say these things in the face of persecution? I respect the authorities God has established in China. Maybe surprising to some, but this posture actually reflects just standard Christianity. This posture that he has just reflects standard Christianity. This is what the Bible tells us. And this morning, we seek to answer the question, what makes Christian submission to governing authorities possible? That's sort of a big idea, a big question for today. What makes Christian submission to governing authorities possible? I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13. And we are in verses 1 to 7. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. And we are 
in this ultra-practical section of the book of Romans. By the way, if you're using one of those pew Bibles in front of you, it can be found on page 948. 948. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul in the mid-50s A.D. Paul was a man used of God to lay the foundation of the world and uh, the foundation of the church on Jesus Christ, that is, through the preaching of the gospel. And again, this ultra-practical section of the book of Romans is considered the second half of Romans, Romans chapters 12 to 16, ultra-practical, talks about the implications that come from the gospel, particularly in relation to how the church interacts, like how members of the church interact with one another, but then also how Christians interact with those outside of the church. And here he's talking about governing authorities. In a previous chapter, Romans chapter 12, he talks about even those who, your enemies. But all of this practical stuff flows out of the first half of the book of Romans, which is Romans chapters 1 to 11. And there Paul lays out what the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is. So again, ultra practical, 12 to 16. They flow out of the foundation, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us and are exploring Christianity, let me be clear on what this good news is or why it is even good news. The book of Romans says that there is actually very bad news. The bad news that even though a good and gracious God created man to be in a relationship with him, the bad news is that man didn't care. Man wanted to be kings unto themselves, lords unto themselves. And of course, we know that that's not good. Ask any state in the world. If they are the rulers and their people establish kingdoms for themselves, when there is only one true ruler, well, what's the charge there is treason. And the penalty there is death. The Bible says if we reject God, which all of us have, the punishment is nothing less than eternal hell. So that's the very bad news. We have all sinned against the one and loving true God. We've earned for ourselves the king's condemnation and judgment. But God is a God of love, a God of grace, and a God of mercy. So he sends a deliverer. Even though we had created the problem, God brings a solution and sends his one and only eternal son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty that we deserve. And so he lives the perfect life, even though we could never have, right? in effort that all who trust in him would be counted righteous. He dies on the cross as our substitute, bearing the wrath that all who repent and believe deserve, that all men deserve. On the cross, Jesus Christ was our substitute. And so those who turn to him do not face eternal judgment, but then face eternal life with him, salvation with him. Three days later, he gets up from the dead, showing, that, showing all that God's payment was accepted. His judgment is satisfied. And now the Bible calls you, if you're visiting with us, if you repent of your sins and believe, you're welcome back into the king's kingdom. You're, you're, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. You are adopted into his family. You know salvation, the forgiveness of sins, life with God, life as it was supposed to be. So this is the gospel. And you're visiting with us today, right? Scripture says that this salvation can be yours if you turn from your sins and believe on him. Now, for the Christian, if you're a Christian, we know what it's like to live for Christ the King. And even though we live here on earth, right, we have a new citizenship, we have a new passport, so to speak, even though we are to first and foremost be ruled by God, we are still to submit to the governing authorities. And so our passage tells us, reminds us of these uh, realities. Look there at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. I'll go ahead and read that. 
It says there, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So before we get to the reasons why we ought to submit to governing authorities, one can imagine, right? I mean, we, we all can imagine how Christians might need to hear these reminders. It's not always easy navigating life in the kingdom of man while being of the kingdom of God. We are of the kingdom of God, not of the kingdom of man, but we live here in the kingdom of man. I mean, maybe you Christians have been asking, what exactly is the Christian's responsibility to the governing authorities here on earth. With a new king, a new kingdom, right? maybe the Christians at this point in time were thinking, well, gosh, let's just go ahead and abandon all responsibilities. Because our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. We have a new king, a new law, so maybe we should just leave this stuff here. We see something of this dynamic going on amongst the Christians uh, in the Corinthian church. There we see that some of the Christians thought that marriage and sex were not bad. Right? They're sort of of the earth, and so they wanted to leave some of those things. But then Paul writes them and says, no, marriage is good. Sex within marriage is good. He says, stay in your marriages. It is created by God himself. The institution was created by God himself. That could be what's going on here as Christians are becoming, you know, people become Christians, and then they wonder, well, what exactly do we make of this stuff here on earth with this new king? And so Paul writes, and he's really clear. He says, I respect and obey your governing authorities. Three imperatives. If you're looking at the structure there, we always want to study the passage. He says there, be subject there in verses 1 and 5. Be subject. Submit to. And then as an example, he commands Christians in verse 7 to pay your taxes. Oh, because you're paying your taxes. Now, for some of us here, when we hear submit to authorities, this is easy to hear. Right? You think, hey, no problem, right? I've never experienced any reason to doubt the government. I love the government, and, you know, I think that they love me, so we are good. But you realize that maybe for some of us, actually, they experience something very different. This is hard to hear. Maybe you come from a background where there is a lot of reason to doubt governing authorities. Think of the institution of slavery by the American government. Maybe you have experienced some sort of other ill will, prejudice, discrimination from governing authorities. And so hearing this is hard to hear. And therefore, you know, if it is hard to hear, you can imagine how easily it is to be disconnected from your governing authorities, sort of like not wanting to care about them at all or just tolerate them at best. Not because you think the kingdom is at hand, so why should I care? But because you are hopeless maybe bitter, and therefore you just don't want to submit. You don't want to obey. 
and respect. Well, we need to be reminded, if that's you, we need to be reminded here that many of the Christians in Paul's day probably felt that same way. Paul did not live in a democracy. Paul was ruled by an emperor who basically did whatever he pleased. And persecution at the time of this writing would just get worse and worse and worse. I mean, can you imagine Paul, as he writes these words, has in mind Herod and Rome crucifying his Christ? He has in mind that states are are not always good. Imagine Pharaoh and the Egyptians and what they did to his own kinsmen in the Old Testament. A planned genocide as Pharaoh was attempting to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. But yet Paul still calls his readers, as he's carried along by the Spirit, he's producing this scripture, authoritative, the very words of God, he still calls his readers to respect and obey the governing authorities. So let's now look at two major reasons that Christians are to submit to governing authorities. What makes it possible, even necessary? First, he says, First, he says, God himself has appointed every governing authority. That's what he says, plain and clear. Look there, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And according to the passage, what does it say? Right, look there. He does not say, because then they'll get out of your hair and then you can live the comfortable life you've always wanted to live. So you can get away with whatever it is that you want to get away with. No, the reason is clear. He says, for, that is the reason is, there is no authority except from God. This gets at God's will it is god's will for there to be authorities and then he goes a step further pressing into an explanation he says those that exist have been instituted by god so not only is it according to god's will it's also by god's appointment he himself has raised up kings and brought them down as it says in the book of daniel he himself here has by his will and by his authority has appointed the governing authorities and there he's thinking about the emperor rome So governing authorities are appointed by God's will and appointment. Look there in verse 4. This is why it says that they are God's servant, the avenger of God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So friends, if we resist and disobey governing authorities, we are resisting what God himself has willed and appointed. You resist what God himself has willed and appointed. Now, if you are like me already, your mind is going in a thousand different directions. We jump to all sorts of different issues. We jump to, well, is the passage calling us to total submission? to governing authorities. We think about, well, what about when the government acts unjustly? Like here it says that the government's supposed to act justly, punishing evil, but what if it doesn't do that? And we think about, well, what do we make of the American Revolution? We think about, well, what do we make of Hitler's government? We can think about, what about those who plot and labored for his overthrow and even assassination? I can guarantee you that I will not answer all of your questions. But I pray that we, being uh, seeking to be grounded on the word of God, are able to move towards more of what godly obedience looks like as we embrace God's design for government. So in relation to God's design for government, we have to realize that God's design for earthly government is good. Let's be clear. It is good. If you're thinking about the authorities, you're thinking the popos, and I just need to get away from them, which some of you are, maybe, I hope not, and if you do, I hope you repent. Uh, We have to realize that God's desire for government is good. You realize that that is exactly what our, our world needed after sin 
you realize that that's exactly what our sinful world needed and continues to need because of sin. Ever since sin entered the world. If it weren't for the problem of sin, everyone would still be under the wonderful rule of our God. Where there was no sin, where man lived at peace with his maker. But of course, this is not what happened. Man rebelled and things went downhill really quickly. Genesis chapter 3, if you're not familiar with that, we see man sinning against God. God brings the curses and judgments against man. And of course, what happens? In Genesis chapter 4, you see there the very first murder. But not only murder, it's the murder of a brother. Cain murders Abel because of jealousy. And then as history goes on, according to the Bible, it just gets worse and worse. It says there in Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. You see that man is on a downward spiral all because of sin. And then eventually God judges the world through the flood, but yet saves Noah and his family. God brings Noah and his family through to dry ground and God charges Noah to what? In Genesis chapter 9, he charges Noah to govern Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Let's go ahead and look at this. God charges Noah to govern. Again, God had already brought Noah to dry ground. He brings him to dry ground, delivering him, and then he brings him his law and command. Kind of a reiteration of what happened with Adam and Eve. You look there... Go ahead and look there at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That's what he called Adam and Eve to do. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But look here at verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, That is, it's blood, and here's where I'm getting at. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require. It's judgment here, right? God is holding them to account. And what for? You look there, skip down to verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. I mean, just repeat that. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And then right after that, he says, go out and fill the earth. Be fruitful there, verse 7, and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Here God gives Noah a law, right? Implicitly, God, God charges Noah to govern. In this command, God presents his own values, right? His own righteousness, He gives Noah the laws. He also says, look, these are the consequences for breaking the law. And all of this Noah is to oversee. And when he speaks of Noah requiring the shedding of blood here, God's aim here is to protect human life. Do you see that? He is to protect human life and justice, in fact. If one murders another, that is shedding man's blood, the innocent shedding of man's blood. We're not talking about just war here. Uh, what you're talking about, we're talking about the innocent shedding of blood or the shedding of a man. Uh, this is murder here. If one does that, then it is by the command of God, 
right? By God's appointed authority, that man's blood shall be shed. You see the reason here? The reason is no one ought ever murder another person. Why is it? Because human beings are made in the image of God. That's the reason here. Murdering one that God himself has designed to bring him glory and image him towards other, one another is such a grievous, heinous sin that according to Genesis chapter 9, that the murderer's life should be taken. God is calling on Noah to govern God's new creation in a particular way. Again, God states his own values. He gives Noah his laws, and then he appoints Noah basically as an authority to carry out these laws. It is for, all of this is for the promotion of God's justice, the flourishing of human life, and so that the sin of man can be curbed. This is good here. You have to acknowledge, right? This is good. God's intention right there. But not only is it good because of that, or not only is God's intention good, the fact that there is earthly government is good. The fact that there is earthly government is good. Okay, so once again, if you're like me, you're thinking about like, you think of the worst case scenario. What about the worst, most wretched governments that commit heinous acts all the time? Well, historians, Christians as well, have noted that though some governments in human history have done truly evil things, we, is, we have to acknowledge that even those governments retain some sort of idea of justice. They promote some sort of idea of order in effort to prevent anarchy, right? We understand what that means? So having someone ruling is better than having no one ruling. So, so let's just sort of go down to the 10,000-foot level. Sometimes government, you know, I don't think, as far as I know, no one here works in the government um, creating policies and stuff like that. But here on the, like the 10,000-foot level, you think of like gangs, right? You think gangs are, are oftentimes operating what appears to be on sheer anarchy, right? But even within a gang, you have certain rules, you have certain laws, you have some sort of order, some sort of justice. Well, the same is true on a government level. Even though government can do some truly heinous things, it is still, at some level, even though small, curbing the sin of man. At some level. I mean, just think for a moment. Can you imagine if there were no government? If there was just absolute anarchy and lawlessness. Friends, it, this would be horrible. People, ta- people taking away what they wanted, like stealing simply because they wanted it which includes maybe your husband or your wife, people murdering people off the face of the planet simply because they felt like it. Thank God that there is some form of government that retains some idea of justice and desires some form of order. Government has been appointed by God to promote peace and the flourishing of all life. But government has also been appointed by God for the advancement of the gospel. Now, here in this land, in America, right, we understand this, right? we got religious freedom, so we want to take advantage of it. We can go out and say, generally speaking, anything we want to on the curb, and nothing really is going to come from it, at least in this land right now. So here, the spread of the gospel can take place peacefully, where people come to hear the gospel, and they are saved. But in even where nations where religious liberty like ours is not known and not given, they too know the advancement of the gospel. Now, we could talk about how the church continues to grow under persecution like it did in the book of Acts. 
But for now, we think about this, right? When society is ordered well by the government, the gospel can still spread in various ways. The gospel still spreads in various ways, even underneath a governor like the emperor of Rome in the first century. You think about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Theologians and historians have noted that one reason why the gospel spread so quickly was because of the Pax Romana, 27 BC to 180 AD. Now, keep in mind here, Christians were being persecuted, right? Paul's writing the letter of Romans during this time. Persecution just continues to get worse where the, the Christians for sport are sort of fed to the lions eventually. But yet the gospel is still spreading. If it weren't for the desire for trade to happen between the nations and people groups of the Mediterranean world, right? Be- or because of that, therefore, there was more incentive to take care of like the road systems. Because the road systems were there, the Christians hopped on them and took the gospel around the whole entire area. Friends, that is the gospel spreading, because of the right ordering of society, at least in certain ways. You realize that this happens today too? You realize that that one way in which the gospel can spread here today or even around the globe is because of the right ordering of society? And generally speaking, we have airplanes, we got roads, right? We are to pay our taxes, and with those taxes, the government uses it to, to rightly order society insofar as they can. This is one reason why you are to pay your taxes. It's a good thing to pay your taxes according to the law. It's for the right ordering of society and even God uses it to spread the gospel, not only here in America, but around the world. Now, as we apply this, we have to realize that God himself has instituted the government and this actually speaks to the discouraged and disconnected. Christians, with our idea of separation of church and state, we tend to think that we have God, from the human point of view, we tend to think that we have God's kingdom stuff over here, and then we have the state stuff over there. That stays over there. Separation of church and state. Now, in of course, uh, from the human point of view, as we think about what government should have a say on in relation to what we do privately, right? we should say, yes, separation of the church and state. The state should have no right to coerce its citizens to believe or not believe certain things so long as it is not harmful to society, right? State stays over there when it comes to religion and other private matters until, of course, life is threatened. That is, there is no flourishing of life and where justice is not maintained. But from another vantage point, from God's vantage point, earthly kingdoms are never separated from him, his authority, his purposes, and his will. And Jesus makes this clear in his response to some of the Jewish religious leaders who are trying to trap him in Matthew 22. Some of the Jewish leaders, they go to Jesus and um, try, thinking that maybe they could get him in trouble with the Roman government. They say, is it lawful for us to pay our taxes? And Jesus says, well, okay, well, bring me a coin. Show me a coin. And he asked them, holds up the coin, whose image is on this coin? Obviously, it's Caesar's image on the coin. So he says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, And give to God what is God's. Now they go away marveling, but apparently missing the point here. Whose image is on the coin? Certainly it's Caesar's. But the more important question is, whose image, in whose image is Caesar? In whose image is Caesar? Though Caesar called for the people's worship, he too was a mere man made in the very image of God. Made with a purpose 
made to image the one true and living God. Even Caesar is under the authority and is accountable to God himself. This is how God sees things. And this is how Christians are to understand things. Governing authorities are to rule on his behalf according to his righteousness. And friends, we can take hope where they don't, God will judge them. Because governing authorities exist by God's will and appointment, Christians must therefore submit, and, or submit to and respect them. Okay, so now as we hear that governments are to rule on behalf of God, some of us might think, well, let's just go out and change the government, right? It seems kind of like a natural implication. Let's just go out and change the government and bring the kingdom of God to earth, right? That is our final hope. Well, actually... Change in government is not where God wants our final hope. No national government is the final hope of the Christian. And we know clearly from Psalm chapter 2 that it says there, which functions as a prophecy, that the nations will continue to rage against God. The nations rage, and this is fulfilled in the book of Acts. They rage against Jesus Christ. We know that the nations rage in 2 Thessalonians, for example. This government there speaks about a man of lawlessness, even claims to be God. That's a raging there in Revelation 13, right? The symbolic beast rages against Christ until Christ comes to execute his justice. So friends, I, I hope I bring this up because it's clear that the nations will indeed rage against Christ and Christians. So our hope, our final hope and aim should not be to change the government, thinking that once this guy gets in office or out of office, that finally peace will be ushered in, paradise begins, and we are in the wonderful land of God. Absolutely not. Our final hope is in God who rules, God who is saving people now, bringing them into his kingdom, and he will one day come to judge the earth and make his reign known to the fullest extent. Now let me just say, it is good that Christians labor in, public, in the public sphere or the political sphere as God gives them opportunity to in effort to effect change. And some of you guys might actually want to do that one day, or maybe you are doing this right now. You're laboring in the public sphere, the political sphere. Friends, when I say that that's not our final hope, it doesn't make it bad. Right? So where God gives you opportunity, it can be really good. It's, it would be wonderful to influence governing authorities so that they would be more just, so that they would indeed aim for the flourishing of human life, promote justice, God's righteousness, the welfare of its citizens, the freedom of religion, so God's, new, God's good news can be heralded to the ends of the earth. These are wonderful opportunities. As Christians engage the public, we have the opportunity and responsibility to represent the king of heaven, and the politics of the heavenly kingdom. In so doing, we testify to the kingdom of man that God alone is the ruler, that we are accountable to him, that our creator knows what is best for us, and that he alone is worth living for, and that he will indeed come to judge. Regarding Psalm chapter 2, the point of Psalm chapter 2 is not that the nations will rage, but it's actually the futility of such rage. Because God alone is king and his will stands. So you see here, we are to be both hopeful <clears throat> because we have Christ as our own ruler and active, hopeful and active in this world as we are his ambassadors in this fallen world. And one of the most powerful ways that we as a church can do this in every 
Christian can testify to those around us <clears throat> about the king and his righteousness is to be hopeful and active, living out the politics of the God's kingdom here in this church. That's one of the most powerful ways that we can testify to the king and his ways right now. It's when we are hopeful and active, living out the politics of God's kingdom here in this place that is his desires. That's what I mean by God's kingdom or God's politics. His desires and his purposes here in this place. Our hope doesn't rise and fall on some policy out there in the world, but in Jesus Christ and what he has established already and what he is doing right here and right now. We as Christians have all been given the calling and responsibility to display his glories of the king, the glories of the king out there in public. Yes, certainly but especially within the church. Okay, so if you have any desire to change the, the world around you, which I hope you do, you think about this. You think about, let's say, you want to change stuff about people loving the sanctity of life. That's great to do that out there. Great. But you realize that it is more immediate upon us to uphold the sanctity of life in here and labor for it, live it out here in the church proclaiming that every single person's life is to be valued because we are all made in the image of God. We live it out, striving to protect life in the womb here and caring about it here. And then also caring for those who are headed to the grave. We should be caring and appreciating and valuing people of all sorts of different backgrounds, ethnicities, the rich and the poor, and on and on. This also has to, to deal with the way in which a lot of us here might wrestle with lust. You want to talk about the sanctity of life? We talk about how sacred life is here as we learn to value women and men as God himself has designed, uh, designed them to be valued, as he himself designs them to give glory to him, not so that you would feast on them for your own carnal desires. You think about immigration reform. It's important to discuss immigration reform out there according to what we think is wise, informed by the Bible. But as a church of God, it is upon us here to give ourselves to practicing hospitality towards one another, especially to those who are different from you, making sure that everybody in the church is safe and secure in the love of God and that all those who join the church find a home for themselves. Think about family values, right? It's good to discuss uh, within the public about family values. Well, friends, it is upon us as God's people to first honor our parents, love our spouses, love our children, take care of widows and orphans, oversee others according to our church covenant as, by, as the Bible calls us to. Friends, all this stuff, this is life that just simply flows out of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we have been saved from our sin, brought into the kingdom of God, where we, live out the God, where we live out God's desires and his purposes for his people. And in doing so, we display his marvelous glories to the watching world. And then they actually start taking notice like, you guys are weird here, and I think I actually like it. This can actually happen. We are the people of God where every Christian in the church has his mind set on the things of God by the Spirit. So even if the, the culture around us in the world is crumbling... Friends, the church shines all the brighter because we have the light of the gospel and we are to live lives transformed by the gospel. Thank God the kingdom of God does not rise and fall on earthly kingdoms. So may our hopes 
never rise and fall with those earthly kingdoms. Friends, this should check us. If your hope is in some sort of political party or immigration reform or something, it should check us to see whether or not our hopes are set on the kingdom of God and Christ or the kingdom of man. Because, as Pastor Mark Dever says, before and after America, there was and will be a church. The nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. So friends, let's fix our eyes and our hearts first and foremost on cultivating life, the flourishing of life of the people who are here in Christ's church because our final hope is not set on any earthly government but on Christ the King. Okay, the second reason, much shorter than the first, for why submitting to government authorities is possible is point number two. Second reason for why submitting to governing authorities is possible, well, it's because there in verse two, because governing authorities are to promote good and punish evil. They are to promote good and punish evil. This is why verse two says there that those who resist authorities will incur judgment. And um, I need to get back to Romans here. Let's look at verses three and four. He continues there in three or four. Four, further explanation, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We see there the function of government supposed to be at least, not a terror to good, but for bad. Now, this, he's talking about generalities here, right? Generally speaking, if you obey the law, why in the world would the government be a terror to you? You have no reason to fear if you're obeying the law, right? But for those who do, in fact, do wrong, that even by God's common grace, the world recognizes as wrong. Take, for example, something like murder. Verse 4, for he, that is the government, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So look, this is simple, right? Why do why submit to the authorities? Because if you don't, generally speaking, you're going to be punished. He does not bear the sword in vain. Interesting here, I do think he's talking about Genesis chapter 9. Paul is talking, thinking about um, executing justice on those who murder. Right? For those who do good, they're going to be respected. And we know this in, just in regular life. This is plain today. And for those who do evil, they will be judged. So he says, submit, because who wants to be judged? It's an ultra practical reason to submit to the government. But even in this command to be subject, the incentive for the Christian to obey should never just be, should never just be to escape punishment. That's not why we drive the speed limit. It's not so that you would save a few dollars and escape punishment. This gets back to the as aspect of the Christian's witness for Christ that flows out of the gospel. It's a Christian witness here. Elsewhere, it says in Scripture, right, that, that the Christian's behavior witnesses something to Jesus Christ and his kingdom to everybody around you. Everybody around you. Um, I have one example. I was speeding. I was, on, I was uh, maybe, I don't know, 20, 22 years old on the way to church. <clears throat> And um, I was speeding, going quite fast, um, on the freeway. And, of course, you know, at eight, I was trying to get there for a worship team practice because I was supposed to help lead. 
and uh, I get pulled over on the 57. I see in my rearview mirror that uh, clearly lights are on and there's someone pursuing me. And so uh, I slow down. I get pulled over. <clears throat> this is off the 57 in Lincoln. And he pulls me over and he goes, son, uh, can I ask why you're driving so fast? And I was wearing, you know, a button-up shirt and looked really nice. And I got my guitar in the back. And I was like, well, I could lie, but that would be sin. <clears throat> so I won't lie. And I'm going to tell the truth. Well, I really just needed to get to my church really fast. <laughs> And he goes, well, son, if you keep going that speed, you're going to see God a lot sooner. <laughs> right? Point taken. I was in sin. I was breaking the law. He was kind of having a good time with it in some ways, uh, you know, joking around. And I just gladly received the $365 punishment. <clears throat> More importantly, he's trying to keep the world safe, right? He's trying to keep the highways safe. There is a Christian witness there, Right? In me disobeying the law, going really fast on the way to church where, I don't know, this guy might have been a non-Christian. He's telling me to obey the law. And he, who knows if he has any sort of moral government forming his world, at least a higher moral form of government. <clears throat> I was a bad witness. The Christian witness there in that instance is bad. This is what he's getting at here. It's not just that we should escape punishment is that we should always be witnessing something good to the authorities. <clears throat> now, I would like to say uh, that even in the ways in which, you know, I'm telling the truth and I'm submitting to him, pulling me over, I'm not making a, get, making a hassle, creating a hassle, and him giving me the ticket, you know, I hope that maybe that testified something good, even though I was still in sin. But that's what we are to aim at, <clears throat> reflecting the glories of Jesus to everyone around us. And Scripture holds this out. This is what right conduct does. We have right belief. We're supposed to have right behavior as well because this is what it does. I mean, in Titus chapter 2, it talks about Christian behavior that's befitting the gospel. It works to protect God's reputation. It works in such a way so that the word of God may not be reviled. It works in such a way so that the opponent, quote, the opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us if they think that we are evil. And that in our conduct, we may actually adorn the gospel of God or the doctrine of God, our Savior. In 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2 calls Christians to godly conduct before non-Christians so that, quote, they would see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In our doing good and in our staying away from evil, Christians must never forget this element of witness. Remember that as you seek to obey the speed limit as you seek to respect those who are in authority over you, as you interact with those who are in authority of you, perhaps, and say that we pray for you. Like, you know, for example, when we've prayed for the police officers in the past, we are called to submit to the governing authorities because they exist by the will and appointment of God who are to maintain justice. For that alone, it says there in verse 7, we are to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect even to whom respect is owed, Honor to whom honor is owed. Of course, this brings up the question here. What if the government punishes good as if it were evil? Like making it illegal to follow Jesus. Making it illegal to evangelize. Making it illegal to gather together as a church on the Lord's day. Does this passage call Christians to complete total submission? The answer is no. The answer is no. Where the government or anyone calls and coerces Christians to disobey God, the answer is simple. 
quote, we must obey God rather than man. That's from Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the apostle Peter there. The Jewish authorities, right, authorities over Peter, uh, over Peter and the other disciples had told them to shut up about this Christ and this gospel. And what's the response there? We are to obey God rather than men. Elsewhere in scripture, it's clear that God commends certain disobedience to the state when the state commands God's people to disobey him. Right, we get this. Earthly authorities are ultimately accountable to God, the ultimate authority. Where earthly authorities call God's people to disobey God, the king, we are to obey God rather than men. Think about when Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, ordered that baby boy infants of the Hebrews be thrown into the Nile. They were to be killed as the planned genocide. And it was the, Pharaoh, uh, it was the Hebrew midwives that Pharaoh tells them, right, to, to do this. If you see a baby boy that's birth, born, kill them. But what do they do? What do the midwives do? In Exodus 1.17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And do you know what happened? It says that God dealt well with them and blessed them, quote, with many families of their own. They feared God rather than man. Think, too, of when the Israelites were, again, under captivity, this time underneath uh, the Babylonians. In the book of Daniel, it says there that the king ordered the Hebrews to bow down and worship him. But the three Hebrew men, that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused. And what happened? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. But what does God do? God delivers them. And then think of the prophet Daniel, who was ordered to stop praying to this God. Well, Daniel could not go against his conscience according to what God desired. And though he faced punishment of being, although he faced the punishment of being thrown into the lion's den, that's what happened. The Lord delivered him. So clearly when the state calls Christians to disobey God and go against our conscience informed by the will and word of God, the Christians must obey God rather than men. So if you're visiting with us, and you happen to work for the government, let me be clear, we are not advocating anarchy. In those situations just mentioned, take Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for example, Paul, the apostles, Jesus. Those who obeyed the will of God were willing to accept the consequences that came from the government, the government's laws, its judgments, and its punishments. Now, as Christians, we might think that some of those laws and judgments of the government were not good. This is reflected in Pastor Wang's letter, the open letter as he was arrested in China. But Christians, nevertheless, should be ready to accept the judgments that the world has for us. At the end of the day, though, as Christians, we must do what God calls us to, as he is the only true king, the only sovereign ruler of all, ruler even over government authorities. And keep in mind, again, if you're a government worker here today, not a Christian, you're exploring Christianity, in these, in these instances here, no one is laboring for the overthrow of the government. Paul, for example, in the book of Acts, nobody's laboring for the overthrow of the government, which is good. just should show that there is no, they're not laboring for anarchy. Instead, we want to, as Christians, submit to the government and give honor to those who are in authority over us. Scripture, too, calls us to pray for those in authority over us. And so in our services, even as we did today, 
We pray for the leaders of our country. This is just standard Christianity. This is what our statement of faith affirms. Listen to this. This is part of the statement of faith of our own very church here. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society and that magistrates are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the prince of the kings of the earth. This is what makes submitting to government possible. God himself has appointed all governing authorities according to his will. And they are, to be, they are to punish evil and reward good. And they themselves will be judged according to God's standard. In it all, as Pastor, Wing also, Pastor Wang also explains in his letter, quote, This is the goal of the church, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly, momentary lives about heavenly, eternal life in Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you great praise knowing that the foundation of your throne is righteousness and justice. We thank you, Lord, that because of that, there is, in fact, great hope when it comes to who governs us and who governs the world. We know that it is great hope for Christians who have suffered in the past and Christians who are suffering even right now. And we thank you that our final hope is not built on the kingdoms of man, but built on you and your kingdom. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, according to your kindness, have brought us, sinners though we are, to be saved, to know God, to have fellowship with the king, to have access to his throne of grace in an ongoing way, where you, Jesus Christ, even intercede for us now. Lord, we pray that even as we might think about governing authorities, Lord, we pray that we would praise you because you are king, Lord Jesus, and you are perfect and righteous and just and loving and merciful. So, Lord, we ask that we would store up our hopes in Christ and his return. In your name we pray. Amen.